This episode of Full Armor Radio is brought to you by CR101 Radio Network. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian reconstruction internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. You can learn more at cr101radio.com. We're also brought to you by GCS Apprenticeship Program, which is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can own and operate successful and profitable Christian schools. You can learn more at gcsapprenticeship.com. And now to the show. Hello and welcome to Full Armor Radio. I'm your host, John O'Rourke. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's good to be back to you in the podcast. Today I thought we would do um, a little biblical apologetics, that is, a defense of some biblical passages that some people misunderstand. Um, there are many passages that people misunderstand, and um, I just picked a few that I've heard, and some, some that maybe you haven't thought of, maybe some that you haven't heard, some of the, maybe the rarer objections uh, that you might get uh, to certain texts of the Bible, or just misunderstandings of some texts where people get the wrong idea of what's really being said. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was the issue of hell, a text about hell from uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You know, some people, some Christians have argued or said that hell is a separation from God, right? They say hell is a separation from God. Well, if you're, if you're versed in the attributes of God and versed in the Bible, you're going to raise questions to that. You're going to have objections, rightfully so, to say that how can somebody be separate from the omnipresent God, right? Since God is, you know, boundless and he's in all places, how, how could somebody be separate from him? That is, how can somebody be where he is not? That's not it. That doesn't make any sense. And then secondly, you have texts in the Bible that talk about the wrath of God, right? How, how God's wrath is being carried out on, on people. Like in the book of Ephesians, for example, in Ephesians 5, you have that. You have a list of sins, and he says, for this reason, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience because of those sins. So you have texts like that, you know, Romans 5, 9, we're saved from the wrath <laughs> that is to come, the wrath of God. So what are we to make of this? Is hell being separate from God, or is hell the wrath of God? Because um, that's a question that Christians are not unified on, sadly. People um, don't really understand hell, and they sometimes want to soften it, right? They want to soften what the Bible actually says about it. Um, God is just. He's holy, and he's the one who punishes sin. Okay, so in hell, when somebody's being punished, they're being punished by God for their sin. And the punishment is not separation from God. That's not what makes hell hell. What makes hell hell is that God is very much there, and he's the one dealing out wrath. So here's what somebody will say, though, to that. They'll say, well, what about 2 Thessalonians 1, 9? So let me read the text here. have it up on the screen. This is evident of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So stopping right there, 
you already have something in this text is that God is dealing out the judgment. He's the one who's dealing out retribution to the sinner. You see, for for being persecuted to the church is the uh, context here. Um, Thessalonians are being persecuted. So God repays them with affliction, those who afflict the Thessalonians. Um, and then he, the Lord Jesus on Judgment Day will, um, you know, inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel, believe in the gospel. But verse 9 is the text that these people who say hell is a separation from God is what they'll point to. Verse 9, they say, it says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 9, away from the presence, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. What's being said there? Well, I have over here on the on the right bottom corner, um, lexicon for the word there, from. Okay? So it turns out, in the Greek here, the word away is not there. So it just says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. Okay? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. Now the word from here um, has many, a couple of different definitions here that we could see from it. And they, and the, the uh, translators here chose one, but there's another one. So they chose from meaning separate from. So you see that first entry in that lexicon over there on the right of separation from, from se of separation, a local separation, separating, you know, parts from a whole, so on and so forth. From can mean separated from. So that's what they say, away from. They add the word away so you get the meaning from. But look at the other use of it. It's of origin. That means instead of the, um, the punishment of eternal destruction being away from the Lord, it's actually originating from the Lord. You see, you can read it this way. The punishment, uh, they suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from, that is, originating from the Lord. So the punishment is actually from the Lord, not away from the Lord. So you have to look at, um, you know, your translation. You have to look sometimes back at the Greek. I'm using a Blue Letter Bible, which is a website. It's also a free app that you can go and look at all the words used in the original languages and look up their definitions. So you have here a translation choice, meaning away from, instead of what is also a viable choice, which would be, originating from or destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord, which of course, based on the context, is much more preferred to say that the destruction comes from the Lord because that's exactly what it says in the verses before, that God's the one who's dealing out this vengeance. So it's not that you know hell is separation from God, what it's saying here is that the punishment is coming from God, it's originating in God and he's the one dealing it out, not that they're separated from God. So that clears up some confusion that people may have because they think, well, this verse says that people are separated from God. In what sense? Well, it doesn't actually say they're separated from God necessarily. It could be just saying, because the word also means the punishment is originating from God. 
like it says, the place from whence anything is, comes, befall, or is taken. So the place from whence this destruction comes is God. And that would be a much preferred translation based upon the context here. And the other texts that say that God deals out justice. So that is um, that text, Second Thessalonians 1, 9. Hell is not separation from God. It is God dealing out punishment, just punishment for sins. So that's the first one. Next one I wanted to go over was um, Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22, dealing with um, <coughs> with this uh, passage about sexual immorality of various kinds, and partly about the, the part that talks about rape. So you have a, an issue in the ESV, and this is where this um, problem comes from, is, is a translation choice, again, for words. So let me read this text, verses 22 to 28. And then I'll break it down on what I'm talking about. So Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 28. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Yeah, that's adultery. Verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to, to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So this is adultery as well. Um, and it's because it's because it's consensual. She, she, she didn't cry out for help. She wasn't being violated. She wasn't being uh, in the sense of raped. Um, she wasn't being raped. Um, they were met in the city. She could have cried out. She didn't. She consented to it. There would have been people around. That's the idea. Meaning, therefore, it's also adultery. Uh, betrothed um, means it's it's a it's a legal vow. It's not fully married, but in this day and age, and in the in the Bible, it was a legal vow. So much that you can't just break off a betrothal. You had to get divorced, right? So, like for Mary and Joseph, right? They were uh, betrothed. So Joseph, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he thought that she committed adultery. He was going to divorce her quietly. And they, even it says in this text, the man violated his neighbor's wife, but they were just betrothed. So betrothed virgin, that is a person who is, is bound, a woman who is bound to a man. They made promises, but they hadn't yet consummated the marriage yet. So this is still adultery, a woman who was not raped, but she consented to this because she did not cry out. Verse 25, but if, if in the open country, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Now this is dealing with rape. Out there, uh, a man is, is uh, he's raping a betrothed woman. You see, the difference here, the difference between verse 23 and 24 and, 20, and then verse 25 as a contrast between a betrothed woman who consents to this, which is adultery, versus a betrothed woman who does not, which is not adultery at all. It says she committed no crime, no offense punishable by death, no adultery, it was rape, do nothing to her, she did nothing wrong, you see, because she was raped. It's just like if somebody murders somebody else, the, the victim of the murder is not guilty of anything. It's just like that, it's the comparison that God gives, pretty amazing. So the justice for a rapist is the death penalty, right? That's what we get. But then people raise questions with verse 28. 
if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, now we're dealing with an unattached, unbetrothed woman, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So people wrongly assume, well, the difference between these two texts is that the one woman is betrothed, and she was raped, so there's nothing wrong there. But if, if you're an unbetrothed woman and you're raped, well, then you have to marry your rapist. So that's the objection. Does an unbetrothed woman have to marry her rapist? The answer is no, because verse 28 is not talking about rape at all. It's talking about fornication. It's consensual. You say, wait a second. In verse 25, about, about rape, it says, the man seizes her and lies with her. Then the man who lay with her shall die. So that's rape. And then it says in verse 28, the man seizes her and lies with her. It says the same exact thing. How can you be talking about something else? Well, again, it was a poor translation choice. So you can see up here, verse 25, up in the top left corner above my head here, is about rape. This is the word used, that's the, the Hebrew word for seize, that's translated seize there. To strengthen, prevail against, uh, harden, be strong, become strong over, to grow strong over, be firm, you know, so on and so forth, to be resolute. So to force, basically, to strengthen over, to prevail, to use his power over her. He overpowers her. Okay, that's the sense we get. So the King James Version actually translates that forces, which is, which is good. That's exactly what it means, to strengthen over her. Seize here um, is kind of a little bit general. It should be like seize forcibly to overpower, things like that. Then you have, so that's what rape is in verse 25. In verse 28, like down here at the bottom, this is the word that's translated as seize. To catch, handle, lay hold, take hold of, seize, wield. It's used in other places like picking up a sword, wielding a sword, holding something. You see, it doesn't have the connotation of forcing. It doesn't have the connotation of being strong over, prevailing over. It's just holding. That's it. So what's 28 talking about? It's talking about fornication. A man and a virgin, non-betrothed woman, they lay together, fornication. The man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 seconds of silver. That is the bride price, the, the dowry. And she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Okay? Because fornication is a sin and God calls those people to be married. In Exodus, there is one exception to that, same, same exact law. The, the father of the woman may utterly refuse to allow the man to marry his daughter, or he can allow it. So the father can refuse that. Um, that's one thing that is not listed in here in Deuteronomy, but it is elsewhere. So we put them together and, and can see that. But we're not, So the thing is here, do you have to marry your rapist? No, this text does not say anything about rape in verse 28 through 29. Nothing at all. It's just talking about fornication. The ESV translating C's for rape and C's for merely taking hold of in fornication was a bad choice. Um, they really needed to make a, a clear distinction there because the words really do mean other things. They're not the same Hebrew word at all. So something to be keep in mind, but that's one something that I've seen people you know, object to the ethics of God in the Bible saying something like that. All right, so that's Deuteronomy 22. How about Psalm 82? Psalm 82, this, this one is used by polytheists like Mormons. 
Uh, Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Oh, there's many gods, see? In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God is just the greatest of all the other gods. Well, let's look more at the context. It's just a short psalm, eight verses. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And he says this, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So God, Yahweh, is saying that to these quote-unquote gods. Verse 3, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So what do we have here? Who are the gods? Very plainly, reading the context and letting it say what it says, the gods, lowercase g, quote-unquote gods, are civil magistrates, civil rulers, and God is calling them out for their injustice. Showing partiality to the wicked. You're judging unjustly. You're not giving justice to the weak and the fatherless and maintaining the rights of the afflicted. You're not rescuing the weak and the needy and delivering them from, from criminals. Um, he says, you are God, son of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. You can see another way of translating that, that footnote at the bottom is, you are God, son of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, you shall fall as one man, O princes. But it's clearly, whatever way you translate that, that God is talking to judges of the earth who are judging unjustly, and he is calling them to do right. Um, so the gods are civil magistrates. Why are they called gods, though? Why are civil magistrates called gods? Well, civil magistrates are to deal out justice for God on earth in, this, in criminal justice. So in Romans 13, they're called ministers of God. They minister the sword against wrongdoers using God's word. So they take God's word, they read the, they read the law, and then they use the sword to, to deal out justice for God on earth. So they are little gods, not in the sense that they're divine or supernatural, but that they are operating in the place of God on earth and dealing out justice. That's what they're supposed to be doing. That's what God is calling them to do. In Psalm 82 right here so he's calling these people gods not that they are actual you know divine beings but that they are princes and need to judge justly that's it look at the context not that hard not that hard all right and then last one here cursing parents people say on well, the Bible says if you curse your parents you gonna be put to death so if your five-year-old says he won't take out the trash when you tell him to. You need to kill your five-year-old, right? That's exactly how it's been put to me, um, that, you know, you have to kill your little kids because they won't eat their peas, right? That is the argument that has been put against these texts, and, of course, it's just bad Bible interpretation. So here are some of the texts. Exodus twenty-one seventeen: Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Then Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21 is a, is a bigger explanation of this type of crime. Verse 18, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, 
Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out, of, out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this, is our, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to, to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now I gotta say, um, the misrepresentation of this is always your seven-year-old won't eat his broccoli, therefore put him to death, right? He won't take out the trash. He won't do that. He back he back talks a little bit, put him to death. So that's not what this text is talking about, and maybe you see where I'm going with this already. Now we'll say this: some of y'all will not probably like what this text actually says. Um, but the problem is not with the text. The problem is with the person who's judging God's justice. Um, one, because it's completely arbitrary. By what standard does a human being tell God that he is wrong? Because the only way we can have morality is from God in the first place. Right? So why do I, how do I know it's wrong to murder? Because God has said. So if I say, well, God, you're wrong about something, my, my whole sense of justice only can only comes from God, and I just have skewed it. If I'm gonna, if I'm going to be criticizing God, then I have perverted what's right with by my sin. So, um, whether you like it or not, you gotta have to deal with this text and, and accurately understand it. Um, but nevertheless, some of y'all may not like it. But the problem is not with God or the Bible; the problem is with you. And these texts can be hard to swallow for people initially, but it's important for us to read them to know what God's standards of justice are and to know what they're actually saying so we're not misrepresenting God. So, we have in this text the son. It doesn't say how old the son is, but can we surmise something? He's stubborn, rebellious, and he's a glutton and drunk. How many drunk five-year-olds do you know, right? How many five-year-olds are drunkards? We're talking about a grown-up son here. Okay, the word son here does not mean child or baby. Um, it just is the word son. It's used for the word son all over the Bible. All over the Bible in genealogies, you know, so-and-so, son of so-and-so. doesn't mean that that guy was a baby. He's just the son of that person, right? So that's the word here. It's a very general word for son. It doesn't, doesn't tell you how old the person is. Um... So, so the, the, the guy is clearly grown up because he's a drunkard and a glutton. He's stubborn, rebellious. He's, he's obviously a, a troublemaker in the, in the community. He is a guy who is just an obstinate, rebellious son who will not listen to any authority whatsoever, glutton and a drunkard. So we're not talking about a little kid. We're talking about a guy who is absolutely unable to be reasoned with. A guy who's completely, completely unfazed by correction and by rebuke. Okay? So we have a guy who's like that. Now what do we have here? Do the parents put him to death? They're not the ones who actually do it. So again, nobody puts people to death with the civil government. So they take them to the elders of the city and they say, this our son is rebellious, he will not obey our, our voice, glutton and drunkard, and then they shall stone him with stones, the elders, the man of the city will do that. So the, so the parents get to decide when this happens. Now how bad would one of your sons have to be for you to press charges against them that haven't put to death? 
they must be really, really bad. I mean, really bad for you to want to do that to your kid. I mean, parents are very much willing to overlook things and, and to forgive often and to really, really be loyal and, and really strive to help their child. But when you get to this point, that guy must be a terror, an absolute terror to everybody, if that's the point that the parents get to. Now, of course, this needs to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. All of God's law says that needs to be established by two or three witnesses. So we have that, but then we have something in Proverbs 19.18 that comments on this text. And it's important for us to, to keep this in mind, too. Proverbs 19.18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Okay, so this text is obviously alluding to this Deuteronomy text. Discipline your son. There's hope. And do not set your heart on putting him to death. Don't give up. Don't say, you know what, this guy, there's no hope for him. We're just going to have to, you know, <laughs> turn him in. There is always, there's hope. There is hope. Really, 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 really discipline and really focus on that and put really all effort you possibly can into that. This is what these, um, the godly Israelites would have done. Only if the son was completely, I mean, if it, he must have been, must be a complete and utter terror, unimaginable. I can't even imagine to the point where the parents say, there's nothing else we can do. This is it. You see? So <clears throat> it's not as though the civil government are rounding up five-year-olds who, who are disobedient to their parents. Right, you have a, the parents' choice on whether or not to turn their their son in. He's not a little kid; he's a grown man. He's a grown man, and the parents have the choice. Now, how often would parents do this? Very rarely. And even Proverbs advises it gives you wisdom. Don't don't go here quickly. You do not want to go here quickly. This is the last resort, which for any loving parent, of course, is the last resort. Nobody wants to have their their child be put to death, but for things like this when he, ha he hasn't done capital crimes but he is a, a he hates and curses his parents and reviles them and so on and so forth so discipline your son for there is hope do not set your heart on putting him to death there are plenty of rebellious children who end up getting saved and, and their life of course is turned around by god there are plenty of rebellious children who do not get saved but then they grow up more you know you have a 19 year old who's pretty rebellious or a 22 year old who's rebellious and then they get older Maybe they get married and they settle down. You know, those types of things happen. Um, but if there's a person who is so obstinate and stubborn, there is a possibility of a penalty of death penalty being um, brought out. That the parents would be the ones pressing charges. Nobody else can just say, "Hey, your son's rebellious. We're going to put him to death." The parents would be the ones to do it, and that would be, uh, of course, as a last resort. So, those are those are the texts uh, that I want to go over. Uh, today. I think it's important for us just to run through these types of things so that if we ever come across them, hopefully we can remember, you know, how to answer the objection that people will give. So just to review them, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, hell is not away from the presence of the Lord. The punishment is coming from the presence of the Lord. It's coming from him. It's come, originating in God. Deuteronomy 22, um, nobody needs to uh, marry their rapist. The rapist is put to death, whether you're betrothed or not. 
um, the fornicator though, the man and the woman who are, are who fornicate, they will get married unless the father of the woman utterly refuses. Um, so the the problem here was with the translation sees for both rape and fornication, and that was um, just a, a sloppy choice, I think, from the translators of the ESV. Psalm 82, who are the gods? They're civil magistrates. They're princes who are not dealing out justice, so God is calling them to do so. And then finally, cursing parents. It's a grown-up, stubborn, obstinate man that the parents are unable to do anything else with. They've disciplined him and gone through all, all possible options, and they themselves have made the decision that they're going to press charges against him with the elders of the city and that he may be put to death if it's proven that he is, has done the things that they claim that he has done. So th those are, um, those are the, the four texts that I wanted to, uh, to go over with y'all. So I hope that was helpful. I hope that gave a little insight into some of the things in the Bible so we can know how we're supposed to answer when people raise questions about these things or objections, whether they're Christians or not. Um, so I hope that was helpful. Uh, if you want to check out uh, more uh, podcasts, you can look up Full Armor Radio on any one of your favorite podcast catchers, podcast streaming services. And if you want to check out more videos like evangelism or apologetics or other things like that, dealing with the abortion issue, um, those are on Full Armor Ministries YouTube channel, Full Armor Ministries, Armor spelled A-R-M-O-U-R, Full Armor Ministries. And you can check out our website, fullarmorministries.org. Now, I am a, a missionary with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship, REF, um, bringing the gospel in Tennessee here. I think it's very important to bring local, to do local missions um, in the United States because the United States doesn't have, people in the United States think they have the gospel oftentimes, but they really don't have the gospel. So it's important to do that. So that's what I, I do, um, is do missionary work, bringing the gospel to people in Tennessee and in Virginia, uh, that kind of area. So if, you, if you're a Christian, if you want to pray for that, and also you can find out more and support uh, support us from the website, fullarmorministries.org, or sign up for the newsletter, also on fullarmorministries.org. So with that, we will go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks so much for watching or listening, and God bless you.